Welcome to our sermon. I am Pastor Nathan Escarga, and I am sure that God will speak to you through his word today. Once again, good morning. Good morning, Lighthouse family. Uh, so, as, as Pastor Dave was mentioning, I'm once again blessed with the opportunity to speak before you all, uh, as Pastor Dave frequently gives the associate pastors, Pastor Nathan and I, opportunity to speak, uh, and, and he, he asked when we might want to do it, and, and I had already known in my heart that uh, right at the end of that series on Revelation, uh, I, I knew I needed to be speaking, uh, which, believe it or not, is a bit of an ab abnormality. So I don't know how many of you will remember, in fact, probably very few of, few of you will remember uh, the first time that I was on this, this stage was actually at the outset of my internship uh, over a year and a half ago. And, and not many of you will remember it, but I remember it very vividly uh, because Pastor Dave welcomed me up to do a Power Sunday to, to just sort of interview me and, and ask me a number of questions on, on my testimony, on my calling, and uh, on my perspectives on, on different theological matters. Uh, and, and one of the questions that he asked me, and you guys might not remember this, but I remember he asked me what my perspectives were on eschatology, which kind of caught me a little off guard. Because uh, eschatology, that term, it's basically just the, the biblical study of the end, of end times, of anything that, that has to do with Jesus' return, um, and, and what to look for, the signs of the times, uh, so that you know when the end might be coming. And I had, had to sit on this stage, and I admitted to Pastor Dave uh, and the entire congregation that I was a bit weary uh, of studying eschatology. But I explained that I came by that aversion honestly. Uh, I... My mom, my mother, God bless her, has a, we'll say a healthy obsession uh, with studying Revelation and learning everything there is to know uh, about the end times and, and about eschatology. And so she's constantly looking all around her for the signs of the end times. And, and she, she'll point to different trends and things that we're seeing uh, around us uh, and, and saying that Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, and so through this fascination, uh, I jokingly began to call her a little bit of an eschatomaniac. She became a maniac with how much she loved uh, to read eschatology, and she was so interested in it that she loved to share about it with all of her friends, and, and she loved to share about it with her family, which of course uh, made me, a young man, a little bit of an eschatophobic. I became pretty afraid. I uh, didn't, did not, not afraid, but I guess just an, a, a healthy aversion to, to the things of eschatology, and I came by it honest because I was a young man. I was very, very young. I was 13, 14. I didn't want Jesus to come back. I'm only a teenager. I have so much life left to live here on earth. Of course, I looked forward to being in heaven. I looked forward to being free of sickness and the shackles of the flesh and the broken, fallen world. And now as an adult, uh, especially with, with the things going on around us, especially now, I have much more of an appreciation for the, the idea of Jesus returning and saving us from, from all of this health, this, this pandemic, all of these horrible things that we, we see on the news. But at the root of that aversion to Jesus' eventual return, I think there was something that was kind of profound. It was that I wanted to live a life of purpose. I wanted to live a life of meaning. And I wanted to do everything that I could before that end took place. I wanted to leave an impact on eternity I wanted to leave an impact on the lives of others before Jesus came back so that I could hear the words from God when he finally did return that he would say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
And so when Pastor Dave asked me when I wanted to preach, I already had felt God was speaking to me about the series he had been going through in, in Revelation, which, which I had been following along with. I don't know how many of you guys got that, that sheet of paper that Pastor Dave gave us, um, but, but he gave us that sheet to just sort of look through Revelation and to follow along with the, the readings uh, at home. And I knew in spite of my aversion to eschatology, there was a profound truth that God was speaking to me through that study of eschatology, that study of the end, uh, and, and throughout. And there was this one thing that I knew that needed to be shared. And so Pastor Dave, he came to us and he asked when, he, when we wanted to preach. And he, he was kind of looking at March because he has a couple things going on in March. He, he was hoping we could take uh, a couple Sundays to, to help him clear his plate a little bit. And I told him, I want to pre- preach right after your Revelation series. And I think that caught him off guard. But even more than it caught him off guard, I think it caught me off guard. Because I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about eschatology. But, but I think this is what God really needs to be said right now. And so as we go through that, that Revelation, and, and Pastor Dave has that sheet for us to fill out, he asked that we would look at all of these, these things, these texts. And Pastor, you, you might have remembered Pastor Dave throughout his sermon series. Every once in a while he would say, you know, these heavy heavy texts, these heavy warnings, these, these, these are really heavy topics, um, the signs of the times in the book of Revelation, uh, and, and we, he wanted us to record all of these heavy, heavy thoughts, but we wanted to look at it through this lens of faith, hope, and love, and as we were doing that, that that's our word for 2022, to, to move forward in faith, hope, and love, our word for the year, and I'll admit that at times when I'm reading through Revelation, I'm reading through these super heavy texts, I would come to, to passages that talked about, you know, this demonic power that will be wrought by the beast with seven heads and ten crowns. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm looking for faith, hope, and love here. And honestly, the, the only faith, hope, and love I'm finding is I, I have faith that God's bigger than that beast. I, I hope I'm not in that beast's way, and I love to be raptured before it returns. There's my faith, hope, and love. But in all seriousness, as, as I was working through Revelation, at times it did feel like Pastor Dave was saying, it felt very heavy. And he would often say that from this pulpit. Sometimes the warnings of Revelation are very heavy. And, and these things of, of eschatology, they're written in this enigmatic code by someone 2,000 years ago trying to understand the matters of the end times today in an almost hallucinatory, dreamlike vision. And he's trying to describe all of these images that we would maybe see as normal. But he has to, uh, to describe them to ancient Israelites with the words that he understood. But the messages that Pastor Dave delivered and the prayers that we often prayed throughout often worked through Revelation and are boiled down to these really profound, overt themes that we can all take hold of and we can all grab. None the least of these themes is one that I find written throughout all of Scripture. Perhaps most poignantly in the study of end times, and, and the, when we're looking at uh, revelation and eschatology, is this theme of God as our long-suffering Savior. That Jesus died for our sins, and he promised he would be coming back soon. He'd come back to rapture his church soon. And so we find that generations of believers, starting all the way back from Peter and Paul and the early church, all the way to the modern church today, us as believers, we all hang on to that same promise, that Jesus is indeed coming back soon. But that's a really interesting way to look at it. Jesus is coming back soon, but, but how long is soon? 
in the eyes of eternity, it's, it's the blink of an eye. So, of course, to Jesus and to God, that's, that's, that's soon. But that same promise, the same promise that Jesus, as soon coming king, has been held throughout so many different eras. There's been so many inventions. There's been so many times in, in, in every generation, I find that we are still looking at this same promise, and, and yet we look at Revelation, and we look at those signs of the times, and people see them all around them, from, from Peter and Paul all the way to us. And everybody's looking around them. Last generation, the generation before them, the generation before them, and they're looking around and they're seeing the signs of the end times. But Jesus hasn't come back just yet. But I'm telling you today, that is not by accident. You see, God often fulfills his prophecies in a number of different ways, in a, di- in a number of different times, uh, and, and he often subverts our expectations. Let's take, for instance, the prophecy that was given to David, the covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. He said, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and it will last forever. And so this is a really interesting prophecy because, of course, King David expects that it would be his king, or his son, King Solomon. And in fact, it is true. King Solomon built the temple. And he established a throne that, upon which God uh, would sit upon and, and that people would be able to go into the temple and they would be able to receive from God. But that wasn't the fulfillment. That wasn't the complete fulfillment of this prophecy. Of course, we now today recognize that this prophecy wasn't just talking about King Solomon, but it was talking about our soon coming King Jesus. That he truly has established a kingdom forever that will never fall. The temple has fallen, but guess what temple can never fall? The temple that Jesus has built inside each and every single one of us and inside the church body, which he still has going on today. You see, God is often subverting our expectations, but he still fulfills his covenants, his promises, his prophecies, and he does it throughout all of time. So that promise that he makes to people when they're looking around for the signs of the times, And they're seeing them generations ago. We know that throughout all of human history, it will culminate in the end of Jesus' return. But in the same way, he, he tells us, hold on to that promise of Jesus as returning this soon coming king. We're talking about men who used swords to fight their wars and ox to plow their fields. And if you look at how far we've come, we now have wars uh, being fought halfway across the world with missiles, and we're, we're plowing our fields with tractors. Man has since built rocket ships and landed on the moon, and we live in a world in which currency is no longer even physical, but it's mostly digital. Imagine trying to explain the world today to an ancient Israelite. Ask them if they believe that Jesus was, was coming soon, if that was going to be the case, when they, they now look 2,000 years later at how far we've come. So if this soon and soon coming king is more than a lifetime away, how do we hold fast to those promises of Jesus if he, if he is coming soon? How does revelation remain as valuable to us if we look at this enigmatic scripture throughout every side of scripture and throughout every side of the spectrum of what it means to come soon? Whether you're like my mom and you think that Jesus is, is probably coming tomorrow, <laughs> amen, brother? Or if you're like a younger me and, and you hope that Jesus doesn't return any time in the near future so that you can keep serving, I believe God has revealed a profound 
truth among many others that we, we discovered throughout all of Revelation. We actually get a striking glimpse at that theme of, of uh, what, I'm, what I'm going to be speaking about today, but it comes directly before Revelation, at, at the, just the, the, the forefront, the taste of, of eschatology, which is the book of Jude. It is a single chapter, but I'm telling you, it is so deep, it is so profound, and it is so incredible. Now, I've come to realize as I open my Bible, I have a tendency to read certain books more often, that I, I, I go to certain books to ruminate on the themes that perhaps I'm a little bit more fond of, and, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. My mom would tend to ruminate more on Revelation. I, I would tend to ruminate more on the Gospels or the Epistles. And as I worked my way to Jude uh, to give myself a little bit of a break, but still studying eschatology, I wanted to take a little break away from Revelation. Uh, and I realized I've only gone to this single passage, this single uh, section uh, of the scriptures. It is one, just one chapter, but I've only gone to it on a handful of occasions. And as I began to read through it, I very quickly realized why. So if any of you here have a hard copy Bible with you, open it to any page right now for me, any page in your Bible, wherever you want. If you open your Bibles to just about any book, you will notice titles above certain passages of scripture. Does anybody else, show of hands, does anybody else look at that title before they read uh, a section? I know that I do, just about every single time. Because I want to know what I'm about to read. I want to know what I'm about to learn about. For instance, if you look at 1 John 4, 7 to 21, it is entitled, at least in, in my version, it's entitled God's Love and Ours. And so you know you're about to learn about God's love and ours. That sounds great. I'd love to learn about God's love and how I can look at my own love in, in contrast and, and, and understand more about how I should be loving based on God's love. And that sounds nice. Or, or if you stay in 1 John per se, if you look at 1 John 5, 1 to 11, it's entitled Faith in the Incarnate Son. Wow, that's, that's pretty powerful. I want to have more faith in the Incarnate Son. For those who don't know, incarnate means in the flesh. How can I learn more about Jesus coming in the flesh? I want to learn more about that. Let me read that. Well, what made me quickly realize why I rarely return to Jude is the title of the first section. I don't know what title your version has, and you can all turn with me now to Jude. Uh, that's primarily what we'll be going through today. But mine reads, the title of the first section, it says, The Sin and Doom of Ungodly People. Yikes. Yikes, that's pretty heavy. That's too real. It's pretty intimidating. Let me turn back to the part where it says that God loves me and I should love him. That sounds great. That sounds nice. That sounds cushy. I'll stay there. You see, a big part of why I have an aversion to revelation and the things of end times is because I'm, I'm a big fan of grace. I like that thing of grace. It's good. That's not a bad thing. You know who else is a big grace guy? Paul. Paul loves grace. Every, every, write, every letter he writes to the churches, it's so deeply, profoundly written about this theme of, of stay away from the law. Go to grace. Grace is good. Grace is what saves you. We all need to have a deeper understanding of what grace is. It's almost all that Paul writes about. We need to recognize the truth and power of grace that we have in Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection, which is why I love reading the epistles, because Paul talks so much about this beautiful grace in Jesus. Because while Paul loves grace, and I love grace, you know who loves grace more than anyone? God. You see, I'm, uh, uh, after all, he, he sent his son to die for grace. 
If, Jesus, if God doesn't love grace, he would never have sent his son to die for it. And so this thing of endlessly reading about grace that I've tended towards, I, I do it because I want to be closer to Paul and Peter, but, but most of all, I, I want to be more gracious. I want to be like Jesus. After all, he didn't just die for it, but throughout his entire life, he went to people and he told them, I, you've been forgiven of your sins. Go and sin no more. And I love that part where he says, you've been forgiven. But that's the hard part, because he says, next, go and sin no more. He doesn't just give grace, he gives truth. So when I read that title about the, the sin and doom of ungodly people, we recognize we're, we're about to go through a matter of heavy, real, hard-to-swallow truth. But if we read Jude, we'll begin to see past that intimidating title, we'll begin to see that the heavy themes we read about in Revelation, uh, we begin to see that truth only further emphasizes. It lifts up the power of grace because it tells us the reality of what's on the other side if we don't accept that beautiful, glorious grace. And so we're going to read, uh, we're going to skip all the way to, to verse 3, um, which starts like this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you, about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godly people, are ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus, our only sovereign Lord. Now, he begins his letter in verse 3 with this really interesting section. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I instead felt compelled to write, to urge you to contend for the faith. So what he's saying there is, I want to write a letter like Paul. I want to tell you guys about grace. I want to tell you about, you know, that, that cushy thing, that, 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 that encouraging thing, that comforting thing of grace. And yet I feel urged to tell you about truth instead, that I need you guys to contend for the faith. Jude wants to encourage, he wants to write another letter like Paul's, uh, this, this uplifting thing of grace, uh, how among the, but he, he recognizes the attack that truth is going under. How among the message of grace, people begin to pervert that grace to be an all-encompassing license for people to live however they please and ultimately lead themselves as well as we'll see later uh, in, in this uh, book, the most important part that he's worried about is that he, this thing is leading others to condemnation. Jude sees the urgency of the truth as we have learned so much about Jesus and his sacrifice and the life-bringing matter of being a believer, and he recognizes that Jesus' death and sacrifice is, is, is what saves people, but if you ignore the, the need for other people to receive that, there's a really hard truth coming to a lot of people. It might not be to you, but, but it's to somebody you know. It's somebody that you love. And I'll admit that even I, after seeing what was transpiring in our world today, with wars breaking out, our own country and civil unrest, uh, and a world struck by a global pandemic, you know, I, I was hesitant to preach something that wasn't uplifting. I, I kind of wrestled with it a little bit because I know that a lot of people uh, are, see the, the things going on around us, and it can be challenging. And I wanted to write something encouraging, but just like Jude, I, I felt like I, I needed 
to, to say something. I needed that, that God had this message for you, so I need you to catch this. The confrontation of reality in the next passage I will read sounds harsh and heavy, but it's the matter of harsh truth that I, I want you guys, I've entitled this message today, The Inspiring Hard Truth. When we look at hard truth, not as something that, that condemns or something that is scary or dangerous or, or something to be feared, but instead we look at it through the lens of faith, hope, and love, we begin to see how it inspires us to begin to serve and to step out. I'm reading from Jude 5 to 7. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding towns, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. We like to look at Jesus through the lens of grace and ignore the truth because it doesn't apply to us, right? We're believers. We have the grace. We don't need to worry about that truth. We're safe. We're home free. We're waiting on heaven. But when we read this passage, it's easy for us to recoil and say, this isn't for me. I'm saved. I don't need to worry about the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't need to worry about, you know, the destruction of the Egyptians. I'm safe. But who do you think it is that, Jesus, or that Jude is writing this letter to? This letter isn't being written to unbelievers. He's writing this letter to believers. He's writing this to you, to me, to us. To warn them of what happens when grace is perverted, to be made about Christians being made safe as they please, to live as they please, rather than making sure that everyone is safe from going to hell, that everyone is safe from that destruction that was wrought for, on the Egyptians, upon Sodom and Gomorrah, upon the people that we know today. If you read Jude 1, 5-7 through the lens of damnation, it's harsh, it's heavy. But if you look at it as an inspiration to see what is accomplished when we go to grace, you begin to see the message of God's heart. To see people saved no matter what time, no matter what season, even extending in the end times like we learned from Pastor Dave in Revelation. The Lord delivered the people out of Egypt, but those that didn't heed the warning were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah were given warnings of their perversions, and, and they suffer now, as it says in verse 7. They suffer the punishment of, of eternal fire. Jude doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. God did not desire to destroy these unbelieving Egyptians and, and these unbelieving people even today. He does, it says in Scripture, he, he wants no one to suffer the destruction or, or the condemnation of hell. His desire is to see that each is saved. However, the warnings given in Jude are different than the ones given to Egypt and to Sodom and Gomorrah. These are warnings given to us. When he was a warning the Egyptians, when he was a warning Sodom and Gomorrah, he was telling them. He's not telling them anymore. He's telling us. The onus is on us now. We have the opportunity to prevent these things that took place in history. Don't let that happen today. Don't let that happen to the ones that you know, to the ones that you love. Recognize that the hard truth, that scary, that heavy hard truth, it's only heavy unless it's overcome. If it's overcome by miraculous grace, that weight is lifted. Let me tell you about this beautiful, inspiring word that I, that I said. It's called opportunity. 
It says in Colossians 4, 5 to 6, it says in the NIV, Be wise in the way that you act towards others. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now another translation, and this is my little brief word study for you guys, because I got to get one in. Instead of saying the word opportunity, it says literally, redeem the time. Instead of saying opportunity, it says redeem the time. You've been given an amount of time. This opportunity, it's time. Redeem it. Make every effort to redeem the time that you have been given to act full of grace, to be seasoned with salt, because we do not know when the last chance we get, the last time we receive, the last opportunity there is to see someone saved. You see, we may very well go tomorrow, but we may not. Regardless, why do we let the time pass? Why don't we redeem the time? Why do we not seize our opportunities? Redeem today. Redeem the time today, the opportunity you have been given by God. Consider today one last chance to see someone saved. If you knew today was your last day, what kind of fire would you serve with? How would you evangelize? If you really knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, how would you be serving? That is the inspiration of hard truth. That this is real. This is a reality. It is coming. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might not be next month. But it is coming. And we do not know when. I'm going to continue on into verse 8. In the very same way, On the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority, they heap abuse on celestial beings, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the Lord about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. There's a really interesting part there. What they do not understand will destroy them. Pastor Dave preached a message through that Revelation series. I I think I remember correctly, but I think it was entitled, I Wish I Would Have Known. What this passage said is something really interesting when you tie it to that message Pastor Dave spoke. I wish I would have known. What they do not understand will destroy them. Because what they don't know will destroy them. They wish they would have known. And yet I already told you these warnings from Jude, they're not to them. They're to those who understand. They're to those who do understand what what this truth is, what what will destroy them. We know what will destroy them. We've read it. And Jude is talking about it just now. These are people who are polluting their own bodies. They're rejecting authority. They're blaming celestial beings. They're like irrational animals, unaware of what will befall them. Do you think that the people who are rejecting authority, the people who are blaming celestial beings, these people who act like irrational animals are the ones who who know what will destroy them? No, we do. They don't understand, we do. And what is the response that you desires? Not for the unbeliever, but for the believer. Let's look to the next part, starting from verse 11. Woe to them. They have taken the, the way of Cain. 
They have rushed for the prophet into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain. They are blown along by the wind. They're autumn trees without fruit and unprooted, or sorry, uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up with their shame, wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Those are pretty harsh words. Imagine somebody describing maybe your brother, maybe somebody you love, using these words. A cloud without any rain, blown along by the wind, twice dead. And what is the fruit of their labor? Twice death. Not just earthly, but eternal. Two times. Jude describes them in all of these ways, and he goes on to say, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the, all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. What is the response that Jude asked? I just read a whole section, but you only need the first three words. Woe to them. Take pity upon these people. Listen to how he's describing them. They're blown along by the wind. They're like trees that are uprooted. They're twice dead. They can't do anything to save themselves. They're trying their very best. But they're just being blown along by the wind until their eventual judgment. How should we look at these people? Woe to them. Take pity. Look at those people. Care for those people. If you're following along in the, our word, you'll see this is where the title changes. We had that scary, harsh title that made me shudder at the beginning. It was the hard truth. But that hard truth was told to us to make us see how great this next truth is, the truth of grace. You see, we go from the title, The Sin and Doom of Ungodly People, and this is where God flips the script. We as believers have seen the reality. We've been warned about the consequence of unbelief for our brothers, our sisters, our loved ones, our neighbors, those that we care for. And then Jude flips the script. Jesus flips the script. God comes in, the long-suffering Savior to all, and what does he do? He flips the script. What are the closing words of Jude's letter to us entitled? What does he call us to do as believers? What does he say to those who are waiting for him to return, our soon coming king? He says, stop waiting for me to return. And he puts out a call. What is that call? I don't know if this is the same title that everyone will have, but I really like this title and in my version it says, it is a call to persevere. Let's read of that great call, that great calling that's been put on us to persevere, starting from verse 17. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers who will follow their ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, 
and do not have the Spirit. You see, this is the perversion of grace that Jude was talking about. Jude says in the last time there will be scoffers, both believers and unbelievers. He's applying this, this title of scoffer to diff, two different people, believers and unbelievers. He calls them scoffers who follow their ungodly desires. But what does he mean by that first word, that, that word scoffers? These are people who hear that Jesus is coming back soon. That he's coming back for a glorious church, but they scoff. They may believe in God, they may not, but they will pervert grace, they ignore the truth, and they say that Jesus hasn't come back yet. I don't need to serve God today because I got tomorrow. Both believers and unbelievers, they, they share that same mindset, that same perversion of grace. I'll get tomorrow to, to, to repent. I'll get tomorrow to, to evangelize. I'll wait till the next men's ministry event to invite my friends. I'll wait till the next conference. I'll wait till they're ready. I'll tell you, church, I love each and every one of you, and God loves you more. But Jude is warning, inspiring you. Do not let yourself become scoffers, because the truth of the matter is, is you may be right. We as believers, who, these, these scoffers, they might be right. You might, be get, you might get tomorrow, but you might not. You may get tomorrow. You may get to that next ministry event, but why wait? What was it that Jude had already told us? What was that, that word that we talked about? Opportunity? Redeem the time? Perseverance isn't about waiting a long time. This call to persevere that he's given us, it's not about waiting a long time. It's about waiting for God's time. We need to discern every day. We need to be prepared to give an account. This is what Jude is about to say in verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I'm telling you guys today, Jesus is coming back. Perhaps not today, perhaps not tomorrow, but why lose your urgency? If Jesus comes like a thief in, in the night, what will become of our unsaved loved ones? What will become of our neighbor? What will become of our, our brother-in-law? I would often hear as a young man, and I, today I still hear believers on occasion saying that they, they hope Jesus returns soon. How greatly they're looking forward to going home. And believe me, I know. I recognize this is not our home. And, and the, the home that God is preparing for us is a glorious one. It is the one uh, that th this is not our home. We don't belong here. We belong there. But I remember thinking as a young man, with that same aversion to the end times, I don't want Jesus to come back yet. There's so much left to be done. In our study of eschatology, we looked forward to the end times, but it shouldn't get us excited for this to all be over. Instead, what Jude is teaching us in, in his, his one single chapter of the Bible there's so much left to be done. He's inspiring us with this hard truth. There's so much left to be done. Redeem the time you've been given. On one hand, we have scoffers who waste their opportunity because they don't think Jesus is coming back anytime soon. And then on the other hand, we have believers that are so eager to see Jesus to return. What they're unintentionally or unrecognizably doing is they're urging the lost to their damnation. I want Jesus to come back tomorrow. 
what will become of those who are not saved yet? Each is a misunderstanding of this inspirational hard truth that Jude is trying to tell us. And this is my favorite part of of Jude, is these next two verses, 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Earlier in the message, I shared this, this phrase, a theme found in Jude and Revelation that we talk about in, in this, this, this study of eschatology and this, this one theme of God as a long-suffering Savior. When we wonder why he isn't returning yet, it is because his will is that none should perish. Even when his desire is to return and save his son from the cross, to save him from this world, his will for people to be saved is still greater. It's why he let Jesus be nailed to a cross. It's why he had to turn his face away when Jesus was being nailed to a cross. Do you think, Jesus, do you think God didn't want to save his son? Do you think Jesus wanted to be on that cross? No. No, he wanted it with every, every bit of his power to send angels to remove his son from that cross, but his desire to see you saved was greater. How selfish is it that there are believers who want Jesus to come back now? What will happen to our our neighbor, our brother-in-law, our best friend? Jesus is coming back, perhaps not today, perhaps not tomorrow, but why lose urgency? He watched his son die on the cross, and every day that we live and we suffer, God is reliving that heartbreak. When he sees you suffering, when he sees the the world putting his children to death, he relives Jesus' sacrifice on the cross because he watches his new children suffer and die as martyrs. It's It's not easy for him not to come back. I'm sure he'd like to come back yesterday. But his will for others to be saved is still greater. His heart is breaking with us because he is a long suffering savior. That's what it means long-suffering. He didn't just suffer and die on the cross, wipe his hands of it, he's fine, he's done. Every single day he watches his people suffer. He suffers long for us. Pastor Dave preached another message in the Revelation series regarding the last tears that will be shed. I thought it was a really, really poignant theme. In this life we often weep Scripture tells us that Jesus, before he went to that cross, wept. I'm sure that everybody who's listening to this message uh, has, knows what it means to, to weep at the hardships of life. And there will be many tears still before his return. But of all those tears, the last to be shed in all of eternity will be the hardest. They will be the ones with the most grievance behind them. When Jesus wept before the cross, when you wept at the loss of your loved ones, whatever else, the hardest ones that will be wept will be the, the, the very last ones because they're going to be for those who will never be redeemed. You know what's worse than dis- the discomfort of sharing the gospel? Definitively, Jude and Revelation are telling us, they're warning us, they're inspiring us with this hard truth that says worse than the discomfort of sharing the gospel, worse than the discomfort of, of evangelizing, having that relationship with, with somebody maybe altered or changed a little bit, the, hard, the harder thing 
is, is shedding your last tear because you know you could have made a difference. It says, no one shall perish without having a saving knowledge, a salvific knowledge of God's existence. But why limit that opportunity? Why limit what, what opportunity they have to, to, to make a decision for Christ? I don't want to preach this to convict you. Believe me, I don't. When people address their shortcomings or, or their aversion to evangelize to the unbeliever, they feel that truth. They feel that hardness. They feel convicted because they haven't been sharing enough or, or whatever else. But if you stop looking at it through the lens of condemnation and start looking at it through the lens of what Jude is trying to give us, this inspirational, flip the script, where you once saw intimidation, where you once saw discomfort, where you once saw fear, where you once saw worry, flip the script. Change the title. See opportunity. Redeem the time. When you see that loved one, don't think about where they, they could be going. Think about where you want them to go. See them saved. Even as I share this hard truth, I, I at times feel myself tensing up, and I can see the faces of, of people tensing up because the truth of the reality is hard. But in the same way that Jude wanted to encourage the ancient Israelites, but took the opportunity to look at something very real and very hard, this truth, he took it to inspire believers. And in the same way, in every generation, tomorrow isn't promised. Likewise, we have to stop seeing grace only for ourselves and start seeing it the way that Jude sees it for those who are not yet saved. <clears throat> when we make grace about ourselves, we pervert it because we can sit back. We're safe. Jesus is coming back. But we need to flip it on its head. We need to flip the script in our own lives. We need to start looking at the unbeliever as an opportunity. That we get to, every time we wake up, every time we lift our head from bed, praise God, I've been given another chance, another day, another opportunity to see that person saved. I don't want to go to heaven yet. I'm not ready for those last years because I want to see someone saved today. Start seeing grace as the only thing that can save us and our unbelieving neighbor, our unbelieving coworker, our old friend from college, our brother-in-law, whoever it is, and I want you to think of them now. Who is that unloved one or, or, or that unsaved loved one? Flip the script on their life. Get ready. Thank God because that person has another opportunity to be saved, another chance to make that decision. Praise God because he's a long-suffering savior. When we start seeing truth as a light to evolve humanity, when we start seeing today as an additional opportunity that was promised to snatch many from the fire, and that's how Jude closes, that you'll begin to see how exciting grace is in contrast to that condemnation to doom and destruction for the godless. Now, I hope you gained a lot from this sermon, and I know at times it was that same harsh heavy tone, I want you to flip that script. Don't leave this place feeling discouraged. Feel encouraged. There's an opportunity. Look, the sun's shining outside today. God is smiling. There's opportunity for us to see people saved. Every day we wake up isn't a missed opportunity for Jesus to rapture you. Another day of suffering. It's a merciful opportunity that we've been given to wake up, to see that today is a blessed day to see people delivered. That is the love of a long-suffering Savior. God didn't just watch us die. His son died for us. But every day that he sees his children suffer, 
He's, he's not looking at his child suffer. He's turning his face away. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It says that when, when Jesus was on the cross, God turned his face away. And I choose to believe that he wasn't turning his face away because it was too hard to look at it. It's because he was looking at that. He was looking at that person who was needing to be saved instead. Rather than look at his son on the cross, he was turning his glimpse. He was turning it towards you. He was turning it towards your unsaved brother, your neighbor. And he's doing the same thing today. With every heartbreak, with every trial, with every lost one, that last tear that we shed will be the most excruciating one. But I don't want that tear to be shed for my brother. I don't want it to be shed for my cousin. I don't want it to be shed for, for my unsaved uh, co-worker. God has given you breath. He has woken you from your sleep today. And he may well do the same tomorrow, or he may not. But each time you rise from your bed, rejoice. Live in the joy of the Lord, that he has given you another opportunity to see that loved one saved. To know that the doom of the godless could be for one less, or ten less, or a hundred less. And I'm telling you, that is true. With every opportunity we have to minister, just like we had at the man up last night, we saw men saved. We saw them confess their, their sins and be delivered. That they get to live tomorrow and the next day and all of eternity. That's very real. That's very powerful. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm going to close. I'm going to close with this. And just as Jude, at the end of all of this, leaves a nice doxology. I want to leave this same doxology. I want to leave this same uh, message with you in your hearts. I want to close with the same words that Jude did as I welcome the worship team back up to the stage as we prepare to use today as one more glorious, merciful opportunity to share in Christ's long suffering and see our loved ones saved. Jude gives this beautiful doxology where he glorifies God, and that's what we got to be doing today. Jude's doxology in verse 24 and 25 to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the sermon. We really hope that God spoke to your life. You can find more of the Word of God by watching our service live stream and listening to our podcast on our website, lighthouseniagara.com.